from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas, and my name is Mark Fennell. My name's Tamika Mallory, and I am a civil rights activist. Some people call me a civil rights leader. When I was a child, I think I wanted to be a singer. And then at one point, I was going to be a teacher. I went through all these phases because I really just didn't realize that I was actually going to be what I am, which is in the movement. Tamika Mallory has been protesting pretty much her entire life. From joining Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network at the age of 15 to working with the Obama administration on gun control legislation. As the national co-chair of the Women's March on Washington, Tamika proved that women are at the centre of the resistance against the Trump presidency. The Women's March was the largest single-day protest in US history, and worldwide participation was estimated at being over 5 million. The movement sent a bold message to the new US government on its very first day in office that women's rights are indeed human rights. Tamika, firstly, welcome to the show. Um, I'm curious for you, was there a moment when you realised that community activism was something that was necessary both for you and, and for the world? Well, there were many moments. I mean, you know, there were many situations that happened uh, big stories that happened. For instance, uh, the Amadou Diallo case where this young man was shot 43 times, just had a wallet in his hand. Um, And that was like the first time for me as a young girl that I was kind of like, there's a problem here. And being upset about it from the sidelines was not going to like get the job done. I knew that I had to be more engaged and I understood why people were like outraged and marching and and doing all the work they were doing, whether it be calling our uh, mayor. People were doing phone banking to to really express their outrage. It was so much activism going on around it. And I was like, wow, I could see myself doing one of these things or being in one of these roles. And that's when I was young. And then my son's father was murdered when my son was two. So it's been 16 years now when I first found out he was dead. I was so embarrassed about like the whole thing. I was like, oh, my God, you know, we come from these good families. We live in this nice place. And now he's he he was killed and someone's going to ask what he was doing and find out he was involved in some type of illegal activity. And he had no business being there. Who were these people that he was connected to? And I just had all these like feelings of like when the story comes out, people are going to look down on me. I'm a single mom. I shouldn't probably have had a baby so young anyway. I was 18 when he was born, 19, just two months later. And so it's like, damn, here I am with this baby, single mother, the statistic, if you will, all the things that you hear about the young black girl growing up. And then, you know, at some point I just started to try to understand why he was even there. Like what would make someone kill him? Why was he in that situation? Just trying to like pull back the layers of like all the things around it. So all I had was time to think. And it started to come to me, one, that there were so many other people who had been through a similar situation, family members, friends, people from my community that I grew up in, you know, young women who had lost their children's father to gun violence and all these other issues. They were either locked up, dead, or on the streets hustling. And I was thinking, what's the thing, the common thread? And I began to realize that poverty and poor education and all of these other social ills, it was all sort of wrapped up together. And every case, every situation, you could find one of those things happening. So my son's father 
His mother was incarcerated a lot of his life. His father was a drug abuser most of his life. And his grandparents, while they did a very good job, they weren't his real parents. So he he was always kind of in and out of their home and just in and out. He never was in a stable situation. And then when I compare that to the stories of other people who um, have had similar fates, there's some of the same stuff there. I started to realize that there was nothing for me to be embarrassed about, that the only thing that would be embarrassing was me just sort of acting like I had not, it hadn't been revealed to me that there was something deeper going on, that I should be embarrassed with myself if I didn't use it as an opportunity to commit to being a part of the social justice movement. And that's sort of when I took it and began to run with it. It just sort of became my own. I, I realized at that time that young black men and women were up against such odds that you, again, just to sit there and complain about it wouldn't change a thing. When people are faced with structural inequality of that scale, there's a couple of different reactions you can get from people. And one of them I think is quite common is paralysis. People mm-hmm. don't know how to interact. Mm-hmm. People don't, people feel small in relation to that. Why didn't you have that reaction. Why did you go gung-ho and become a person of action? Well, because my parents had already basically raised me to be a person who was concerned with my neighbors. And even though when I was young, I didn't understand it. And in fact, I rebelled against it. When I got older, it kicked in a second nature. (laughs) It was like, this is what you're supposed to do. Something's happening in your community. You fight, make your voice heard. You may march, you may put up flyers, you may raise money from a bake sale or whatever. And you help people. If someone has a fire in their home, everyone gets together to buy all the kids new clothes. Um, you know, if someone's getting beat up, everyone jumps in to help, so- you know, stop the fight. That's the way I was raised. And so once my son's father was killed and I was faced with this major moment when I could have definitely chosen the path of paralysis, of of just disconnecting and saying to myself, you know, it's unfortunate what happened to him. And we sh- I should just take my son and run off and raise him and figure it out. But I chose not to do that because the other path was much more attractive to me, which was using his death and his life to try to save other people. And I think when you're the mother of a young male son whose father is deceased, it makes you even more committed to the struggle because you realize that it could happen twice. There's nothing stopping my son from having the same fate as his father in this moment. And the only thing that will make me feel better God forbid anything happens is that I know I didn't just sit by and watch it happen. You know, I was actually involved in the forces pushing against it in the opposite direction. 16-year-old boys aren't known for being necessarily the most understanding creatures in the world, but does he appreciate? Well, so now he's 18 and he definitely understands what I do and he appreciates me as his mom, but he still wants to do his life, his way. And therefore there's constant conflict. And, you know, I expect that because that means he's alive, you know? And I think only people who are walking around just as dead people, they have no inspiration, no hope, no nothing. They they don't have any aspiration, but my son definitely, he wants to do things his way. He's going to learn who knows how he'll learn, but He's trying to figure it out, and I'm supporting him as he does that. But he's a college student, his first year in college. He's away in school. He's going to be great.
The origins of the Women's March from the outside begins in Hawaii. How did you get involved? So I received a call from folks in New York asking whether or not I was interested in joining those who was planning the march. It's it's like the telephone game. It's like, you know, one person calls, one person calls another person, and by the time it gets to you... I love that it's still a telephone it's call. Like, like in it 2016, it's still a telephone it's still call. still a telephone. <laughs> it was a cell phone, at least, but still, nonetheless, there was a phone. Yeah. I received a phone call from a gentleman who I worked with for many years before the Women's March. He called and asked whether I would be willing to uh, meet some other women who were involved. They were all on the Facebook pages. They were in the, like five hour stage of developing this whole process. Um, and we met with them approximately 48 hours later. And this young lady who's actually here with me today is Brianne Butler. And she's a global coordinator for Women's March and helped to really put together the women's uh, marches um, that happened all over the, the world. I met with Brianne, Bob Bland, uh, Vanessa Rubel and um, other folks in New York two days after the march had been called. We sat down and what was immediately apparent was that the women of color who came to the meeting were the only ones who had actually done a march before. <laughs> Is that because, generally speaking, white women in America hadn't had a need to march before or what? No, I think white women had been marching. It's just these particular right. white women had not been. So they were tr they were trying to put something together. And obviously someone said January 21st, which it was November 9th or at this time, November 10th. And I don't I don't think they understood the amount of work, but they know now they didn't <laughs> learn then. They learned today. They know today how much work would go into it. And so it was really ambitious to say that it would be done in that short period of time. But thanks to people like Janae Ingram, who work from our D.C., the D.C. operation in terms of securing a permit and ensuring that we had an appropriate program um, and then others who got involved, Carmen Perez and Linda Sarsour, who worked together on ensuring that the right voices were at the table and um, in making sure that there was a proper uh, representation there. And Bob Bland, who worked on fundraising and merchandising. I mean, there was so many people, states operation that was led by Evie Harmon and Brianne and Wren and so many people got together to pull off this incredible day. So in that first phone call, how big did you imagine it would be? At the time, the numbers were like over 100,000 people. The way in which I calculate numbers as a march organizer is if we say there's five people going, or let's say six people who say on Facebook, I'm going to the march. I like to cut it in half. When you realize that that's how the numbers work generally in this situation, when it said a hundred thousand people were going to attend, I saw 50, 60,000. And then a few days later, it was up to 200,000. So I saw a hundred thousand and maybe a week before the March, I knew that the permit that we applied for was for 200,000 people. And I knew that we were going to have more than 200,000, but still never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that there would be 5 million people to march worldwide. I wanted to ask you about permits because there was lots of coverage about your permit gathering abilities and people were filing fake permits as, as well. Can you talk me through what happened from, from your perspective? So we never had a permit problem. The whole permit conversation 
the stories about the fact that we were being blocked. And listen, it probably would have made the march bigger if Trump was blocking our permit and we had to come and tell, you know, tell people they're trying to stop us from marching. We probably would have had five million people by by themselves just in Washington, D.C., right? Because people would have said, hell no, like you're going to stop these folks from marching. So I would have loved nothing more but to be able to say that the permit was being blocked by the Trump administration. It just wasn't. We applied for a permit. Janae Ingram, as I mentioned, she specifically applied for a permit. And we were told by Capitol Police and the D.C. folk who were in charge of giving you a permit, all the different agencies, that they were going to work with us on it and everything was going to be fine. We were doing the normal negotiations, trying to get certain spots of the city, trying to get the metro stations up and running. You don't walk up to D.C. Metro or to to D.C. Police or or Homeland Security and go, yo, give me one of them permits y'all got back there. (laughs) Like, it doesn't work like that. There's a process and it takes a few weeks. You got to fill out some papers. You got to talk to some people. You need to be able to show that the other drama was people wanted to know, were we going to have toilets? They wanted to know about these damn porta potties. Where are we going to have toilets? And we were like, toilets are the least, like, there's going to be plenty of freaking toilets. It's like, don't worry about it. But you have to be able to prove to the city that you've actually signed a contract for a certain amount of toilets to accommodate the folks. And it has to be then there were people from the other able or the disabled community saying, are we going to have accommodations for for these particular issues? And again, in order to get a permit, you have to give the city an indication of your plans. So we were doing all of that. In the process of doing it, and every day there was a new story coming out. They're not getting the permit. The permit is being blocked. The city is saying that they won't give out permits. And no one ever told us that. We never had a problem with the permit once. So you turn on the news and you're seeing these stories, and where do you think those stories come from? Some of it is just people just making stuff up. I'm all the way with the conspiracy theory that, you know, <laughs> that the alt-right and the this and, the, and all these people, I'm all for that, that they are making it up. But some of it is actually good intention people who are just spreading falsehoods. They're just saying things that because they don't know. Right. Like, so, you know, I'll give you a, a funny story. So my mom, who knows that I know how to do a march. Right. Like she knows I've been doing marches. If there's nothing else that she's taught me, it's how to do a march and how to make macaroni and cheese. Those are the two <laughs> things. And spaghetti. I'm all the way on those things. Right. And so I was talking to her on the phone one day and I was like, yeah, mom. And these crazy people are running around here about this permit. And I'm so frustrated about it. And she's like, yeah, I keep hearing them talking about that permit. And I saw the news and they were asking about the permit and we're going back and forth. And I'm just like, whoo, it feels so good to speak to my mother because I know that she knows that we're going to have a permit. And at the end of the conversation, she said to me, but y'all have a permit. (laughs) Mom, come on. And I'm like, are you serious, mom? (laughs) Like, are you really asking me this? I couldn't believe it. But even it it was in her mind Mm. that we we probably wouldn't have received the permit because she saw it somewhere. So now she probably was talking to her friends saying, I'm not too sure if they're going to get a permit. So you see what I'm saying? These are good intentioned people that begin to spread falsehoods just based upon people's fears, based upon it being in the news one time. And that's the one thing that I agree with Donald Trump about is fake news. (laughs) Like he created the word. He created the actual what fake news is. The definition of it is Donald Trump. And I agree with him about it. 
Do you sleep the night before an event like this? Can you can you sleep? You, you sleep enough to get through it. Even if it's not a day like this, just living in a society where where you're constantly worrying about how to make a difference and just knowing that people's lives are actually on the line. I, I was I was talking to a friend who is in the movement. She's a white woman who's just getting in the movement. She's trying to collaborate with people of color and she's running up against some issues in terms of how she communicates and how they communicate with her and feeling like she may not be welcome in the space. And I was giving her some advice today. I said, you know, you have to imagine what it's like to be looking at death as a possibility for you. Like right now, you're just trying to figure out how to communicate better with people. But those people who you're having issues with, the people of color, are thinking about the fact that when they go back to their communities, they could get shot by someone who has a traffic gun in their community or a police officer may pull them over and they may not live. You don't necessarily have to deal with that issue. So when you see life from that perspective, it should make you sit back and say, you know what, I can take a few arguments and a few disagreements because I know that you're concerned about your your safety. And so sleeping for me is like always a challenge because I have great privilege. I live in a world that people want to help me. They want to protect me. They want to make sure that I have the things that I need because they believe in me. They believe that I am a leader. Um, so I live in a space of privilege. But there are some people who are completely exposed to the system and they they don't have the protection of movements and that allows them to come and speak their truth. I have to fight on their behalf because for some reason I've been given this privilege and I don't believe that anyone receives privilege to have it for yourself. That the purpose of having privilege is to use it to better others and ensure that other communities are uplifted. That level of empathy that you need to employ or maybe comes naturally to you, does it ever get overwhelming? Hell yeah. Like, you know, there's days when you just feel like, People are not getting it. You have people, your own people, people who you think understand that you're fighting for them and they're arguing you down about why, you know, we have a, a fight in, in in the U.S. right now around the whole Colin Kaepernick situation where, you know, he took a kneel uh, during the national anthem, which the song itself probably needs to be changed. It was written by a man by the name of Fred Scott Keyes. One of the particular verses is all about slavery and how slaves won't get away. And so the, the, the history of the song and the spirit of the entire song is not necessarily a good representation of where we should be as a country. Mm -hmm. um, and so Colin Kaepernick kneeled during the national anthem and said that he would not uh, salute the flag until America began to give justice to people who have died um, at the hands of police brutality and uh, excessive police force and what have you. And so it makes perfect damn sense to me. Like at the end of the day, that's the reason why we work so hard in our communities. Grandmothers get together to have bake sales, to make sure that the little guy who has the athleticism or whatever you call it, he's the one that's going to be a star in our communities. And we want to see him go off and do well. And if he needs a uniform, it's like little grandmothers getting together and getting the money together and we send him. And then all of a sudden, oh man, he makes it big. And now he's going to the NFL. 
Again, his privilege of getting there is not for him. The little grandmother was not just trying to make sure he got there. We were pushing because we believe that you making it helps us. And so when Colin Kaepernick took a kneel, he's doing it on behalf of us. And so to have people in my own community argue me down, you know, it's like you sometimes you just get weary. Where do you go to find some peace in that? So I have a great family. And when I say a family, not only do I have my good old mama, who I keep talking about, and my father and my partner and my son and my family members. I also, when I say family, it's also sisterhood. It's also uh, just a lot of friends that we, that I have developed friendships over the years in the movement. And we, we wrap our arms around one another. We support one another. We, we try to operate from a place of love. For people who are either organizing or working with people and they don't love one another, I don't know what the hell they're doing because it, it just doesn't work for me. And I'm so proud of the network that we've built where all of us lean on one another. Let's go back to that moment. You're standing up at the march. You're giving a speech. Has it dawned on you yet the intense power of that moment, the the historic nature of that moment? No. I knew that it was incredible that so many people showed up. And I knew, of course, that, wow, you know, the news is going to say that this was a great day and so many people came out. And I, I had friends who said, you know, you put your career on the line for this. And I was really worried about it. Like, they were like, they, they were there at the march with me. And they were like, shit. Like, I was really worried. You know, I didn't think, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. they tell you afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Like, at the march, they're like, whoo, you know. But you did it. Like, it's, it's, it's great. And you all did it together. So, yeah, it was like, wow, we turned all these people out. But the thing is, our cell phones were not working. So... The cell towers were all down and you couldn't get a message. So much so that my partner that I've been with for 10 years, who's been with me through all the great things, he was headed to meet me at the march and had to turn back around because he just, he couldn't get on the train. He couldn't get off the train. He couldn't get down streets. He went back to the hotel and watched it on TV. Um, and he couldn't even call me because my cell, <laughs> cell phone was down. My parents walked over 25 blocks and still could not make it to where I was located. Right there in that little space, incredible. But it wasn't until I, I got back to the hotel, sat down on my couch, turned on the TV and he's sitting there like, I tried, you know, <laughs> but it didn't work out. And I sat down. The first thing that happened was I turned my phone on and my son texts me, mom, this is incredible. I'm so proud of you. So that was first. I was like, this must be huge. So you like, haven't really got numbers at this point. Do I don't know right. what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I know that there are more than a million people in D.C. That I was clear about. But still, you know, and so you, you feel like, yeah, we did it. When, again, when I sat down and my son said my, he wasn't there and he says, Mom, this is incredible. My first reaction was like, if he thinks that something that I'm doing is incredible, damn it, if this is big. Like, you, you, you impressed know, a teenage I'm boy. Like, wow, <laughs> a teenage is impressed. So then I turned the TV on, and so there were all these people, and I'm like, wow, look at D.C. But then there was, like, London on top of the screen. There was, like, they kept flicking pictures that at first I thought was, like, areas of the D.C. march. 
but it was like other countries and I was in complete shock. I couldn't believe it. I just sat there and just my mouth was wide open. You've said something really interesting that I'd love to get to understand a little bit more. You said that in one day we shifted American culture. What has changed from, from before that day to now? What's the, what's the fiber of that change? So I just met with the Women's March organizers from Australia. Obviously, we've never seen one another before. We don't know <laughs> each other. We, you know, a few phone calls, but that's it. Two women sat down with me, two white women, and they both said, you and the work that you did changed our lives forever. The one woman went as far as to say she organizes in a women's empowerment space. And after the march, she realized that she was one of those women that we were talking about. One who was not really working on behalf of marginalized communities. She, when she said I was one of them, she sort of put her head down. Like, you know, I didn't get it. And she said, and now I realize I'm starting from scratch. I don't know anything. That to me is shifting culture because prior to January 21st, people were walking around with their heads up in the air that, you know, I'm better than you and I don't have to care about your issues. And the work that we put into the Women's March where it was intentional that we talked about race, that we talked about uh, sexism and how women can help to uphold bias and sexism and all these things, how just because you're a woman, it doesn't make you clean hands of the dirt of this thing. We brought things to the forefront that made people very, very uncomfortable. They had to have conversations they didn't want to have. They had to allow women of color, particularly a Palestinian Muslim young woman, a Mexican-American young woman, and a black woman to lead them. That has not been done. And particularly when you talk about feminism, feminism is the empowerment of white women in many spaces. And of course, there has been movements of black feminism and Chicana feminism and all these other movements. But the real historic roots of feminism is in the fact that white women wanted their rights, they fought for their rights and didn't give a damn about who else didn't get theirs. We changed what that looks like. We changed feminism in the 21st century to look like a real rainbow of people where everyone's issues is at the table. And not that we were saying any one group is better than the other, but we do realize that some groups need a little bit more attention. It is awesome to have so many women, particularly white women, come to the table and say, you know, I thought I knew, but now I don't know. And I also know that I'm guilty. And now I'm ready to sit here and work with you. And that's what we've been doing. And I think that that is incredible. I don't know how many other, you know, other than, of course, the, the civil rights movement, when we know minds and hearts were changed, there really has not been mass mobilization in this type of way. And we're talking about the rise of a popular understanding of things like intersectionality, where, you know, it's not just about the rights of one group, it's there's intersecting rights here as well. Yeah. So Kimberly Crenshaw is a woman who I just admire so much. Um, she is a professor at UCLA, University of California, and she is a civil rights advocate. She sort of 
coined the term intersectionality to basically say that sexism and racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia and just all the sort of uh, beliefs that would allow one to be a bigot, they all come together. They all happen at the same time. They don't happen in vacuums. It's not separate issues. They're all one issue. And that if we do not figure out a way to attack them all, we're going to end up in a situation where we knock one head down, like the little game that you play when you go to the carnival. Yeah. You whack one down and then you go over to focus on another one and and the other head pops right back up. Because you're not dealing with the root. Because you're not getting to the root of the problem. There's a couple of numbers that really stand out when you get up and talk. And one of them speaks directly to this, which is the 53% mm-hmm. of American white women mm-hmm. that voted for Donald Trump. When you hear that number now, what goes through your head? Like, does it does it motivate you? Does it depress you? What does it that number mean to you in this context? So one, the number is 53% of white women who voted. So oh, it's okay. not of all white women. Sorry, we, uh, compulsory voting country. We're so used to saying it as, exactly. as everybody. Yeah. Everyone votes yeah. basically here. No, so yeah, 53%. I mean, it's a tough number to swallow. But it's in line with, again, the idea that there is no such thing as feminism that uh, really represents all women. Because if all women had been represented in the minds of those white women who voted for Donald Trump, they would have said, I can't vote for him because it's too dangerous to my sisters. It's too dangerous to people of color. And um, that individualism, that selfishness was in play. I think now some of the 53% realized they made a hell of a wrong decision. As you move forward, what is the role of the Women's March as as a movement, as an organization to carry through, not just into the remainder of Donald Trump's presidency, but beyond that around the world what's what are the what's the strategy right now we know that the 2018 elections are coming up we can't have so much momentum momentum on the ground and not turn that into actual votes right we we realize that in our society and even here in australia your vote matters a lot of people have sort of gotten away from that and there were millions of people who did not vote at all and that's why I think it's important to mention that 53% number is of women who voted white women who voted because there were many women and men who did not go to the polls at all and that has to change because for the most part those people who did not go to the polls are probably most of them folks who don't like what's going on in our country, don't like what's happening with the system, but just don't feel motivated to get involved. They don't feel like their voice counts. And so we've got to go get those people back in the game. We've got to make sure that even some of those who did vote for Donald Trump, who went the wrong way, in my opinion, will now turn around and make the right move that they won't fall into the percentage of people who did not vote, that they won't say, man, I made a bad choice. See, you know, I voted for President Obama And I don't like everything that happened there. And then I voted for Donald Trump and that's not working out. Like this whole voting thing is not working. We don't want people to feel that way. We need people to stay encouraged to be involved. And we all what we want to see happen is that women specifically are in the forefront leading the charge towards local organizing, local government being shifted to focus on the needs of the people. Women's March will be organizing that. Obviously, the the midterm elections, the general election, we have to ensure that our voices are heard there. 
But I think that, again, back to the point about shifting culture, uh, one thing that the Women's March has been good at is getting women who have never been engaged in movement work in the past and giving them sort of a toolkit for daring discussions within their families, giving them a toolkit for organizing. And we want to continue to do that. We were talking about the game of whack-a-mole and, and getting to the root of the, the problem. Is that where that, that starts? Is it conversations in, in homes? Is I believe it- so. I believe that the first thing is, People have to have difficult conversations in their households. We're not doing that. People are shying away from those tough conversations, um, and we want to change that. We also understand that some people don't even know where to start. And so Cassidy Finley on our team and Paula Mendoza and uh, Sarah Sophie Flicker and the list goes on. Um, they really pulled together and started something called Daring Discussions, which is being passed through the Women's March huddles, 5,500 huddles, and outside of the huddles, within the first 100 days after the march, um, we had some of these daring conversations where Carmen Perez has actually put together a curriculum for how people should approach conversations in their homes and with their families. We have people who are working all the angles, trying to ensure that people are empowered with the tools that they need to start digging and, and really trying to clean the cancer out of our systems. How would you execute a conversation like that? Let's say I got a super racist uncle and I'm going to dinner with him tonight. What's are their basic tips in terms of how to engage with him? Yeah, I need to invite someone else up here to talk about that because I'm probably not as good at it as I should be because <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like that That's my conversation. There are some people who are way more patient than me and they can have these conversations and say the right things. And I'm more of a straightforward, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you. But you're kind of dangerous to me. People generally don't come around me talking about <laughs> these things. They they pretty much keep that away from There's me. There's a TV show on that with you, by the way. <laughs> right, yeah. But, you know, but I, I do have conversations with my own family members where sometimes they are, again, you know, they're the Colin Kaepernick, I'm still going to watch football type people. I think what's happening to him is wrong, but I'm not going to be inconvenienced. And I do have to have those tough conversations. First of all, you never know where it's going to go. There is no platform or guide that you can use that's going to keep people from being emotionally checked by you even addressing them. But when you know you're doing something right, you actually might lose some friends along the way. And that's okay because it it means that they have to, every time they see you or don't see you, they think about that conversation that you had. And that's all right. How important is your faith in driving your activism? My faith is what really gets me up every morning because on the days when it's tough or the days when I just don't feel up to it or the days when just going to the beach was sounds like a better plan. I, I think about how much God has blessed me and my family and how he has put a calling on my life and how I know that no matter what the issue is, no matter how tough it is, how difficult it is, I know that I have a covering over me and that gets me in the fight every day. In the ensuing months after the Women's March, you've been made a target by the NRA. When you see something like that, when you see an ad directed at you by the NRA, does a flicker of fear cross your mind? I don't know about fear, concern for my safety and for my family's safety, but they would love for me to say that I, that I feel afraid. Um, that's the purpose of them putting me in an ad and, and making me a target is to make me afraid. I don't walk around with fear because you can't really have faith and fear 
all at the same time when you're in this movement. You've got to choose one or the other. And um, that's not easy. And sometimes you slip and fall on one side or the other, but that's sort of how you have to get up and, and go at it every day. The NRA, it's like, you know, just another punk that's coming at you and you just got to punch it and it'll run away. And that's exactly what happened. I I uh, debated Dana Lash, who's their spokesperson. She, I don't know what the hell she was talking about. And she doesn't know either. Doesn't have anything to really say that makes sense. Uh, so it feels good because what I'm saying is right. And if you speak from a space of righteousness, you can always defeat those who are trying to come from a space of hate. As the mother of a young African-American man, what do you give him in terms of life advice before he steps out the door? It's probably one of one of my second hardest jobs. The first one is trying to, you know, get people to stay engaged in the movement, especially when you're fighting things that they think are too big for them to conquer. But the second thing is, Having conversations with my son that I feel in a way sort of demoralizes him. Imagine having to tell your child that if a white man approaches you, whether they be an officer or not, and they call you out your name and they're doing something wrong to you, just put your hands up, say yes, sir, and get home safely. That takes away his manhood. That if someone is speaking to me in a way that is disrespectful, I'm not even able to respond. My mother is telling me, just take it and leave so that you can make it home safely and we'll deal with it later. It's tough to have to tell him that when he's with his friends, his white friends, and they're running around, you know, playing basketball or or going to the store, that I have to tell him, Don't walk around the store with your hands in your pocket. I don't care what your friend is doing. Don't run through a neighborhood. I don't care what your friends are doing. If they're running, you walk. That's the conversation that I have to have with my child because as a young black man, he is automatically a threat. It is very uncomfortable to have to stop him on his way out the door, to put these negative things in his mind that he shouldn't have to think about. He should just be able to live as a young man, a kid who knows that he has to do the right thing. And so long as he's doing the right thing, he should have no reason to face the hatred that this country has for him or that my country has for him. But he does. And I have to have those conversations. And it's tough. And so that's why I always say to people, if I can have those conversations with my son, you have to be able to sit down with your mother and your father and your siblings and talk to them about who they're voting for and their racist beliefs and views. Tamika, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Thank you so much. All right. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from the Antidote program and it was hosted by me, Mark Fennell. There you go. Uh, it's produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway. Music mix by Evan Williams. We were recorded by Josh Craig, mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. And we will catch you on the next episode of It's a Long Story. Goodbye.